If you have trouble finding Jude, it's all the way in the back. Just turn to that part of the Bible that you don't like spend a lot of time in. You'll, you'll find it there. Jude. <clears throat> Last week, by way of introduction, we read the whole of the letter, and um, that is a, a moving experience, in my opinion. But uh, for this morning, let's read together the opening three verses by way of introduction. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we stand holding your word. Uh, We ask that you would grant us boldness to defend it, confidence to trust in it, and that you would, uh, as uh, as the poor soul expressed to you, In the Gospels, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, that you would meet us where we are, as we sometimes wrestle with a particular confidence in your word. Do these things teach us, mold us, and make us for your glory, for our good and our joy, and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things together. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you were not with us last week, we did an introduction to the letter of Jude. I can't possibly teach that again this morning, so I certainly encourage you um, to uh, go back on our Facebook live feed, uh, or else you can subscribe to a Hillcrest Charlotte podcast on Apple and Spotify, and there stay in touch with all the teaching here at the church, including our exposition of the letter of Jude. After Jude introduces himself there in verse 1, which is what we essentially covered last week, he expresses customary wishes in ancient writing. This was a, a normal, formal way to begin a letter in the ancient world, beginning with the writer to the recipient and in a particular greeting. In this case, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Literally in the Greek, be yours in fullest measure. To the believer, those words come to our ears like a balm, don't they? Mercy, peace, and love be yours in the fullest measure. Puts a little smile on my face. It isn't, as we might assume and might casually read, it is not a throwaway line. We find similar greetings in Paul's letters, grace and peace. Sometimes in the case of Paul's letters to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace. In Jude's case, he uses the term first, mercy, eleus, means mercy, compassion, or even the idea of 
pity. In Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman who had a daughter possessed by a demon cried out to Jesus, O Lord, son of David, have eleos on me. Have pity on me. Have compassion on me. Have mercy. My daughter is possessed by a demon. In Ephesians, Paul describes our spiritual state before being born again as one who is, in fact, dead. But God, being rich in this eleos, that same word, mercy, compassion, pity, made us alive together with Christ. It seems that this mercy is the starting point. Paul, explaining the gospel, he says, you were dead, but God granted you mercy. If you will, it's step one. It was the first cry of the Canaanite woman, have mercy on me. It is the, if you will, absolute bare bones beginning of the Christian faith. We are in need of God's merciful pity and compassion. It is a starting point of weakness, vulnerability, and need. The expression of the one who needs this eleos is one of desperation, hopelessness without it, forever lost if it is not granted to me O Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. It's no wonder then that Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because in the great kingdom of heaven, there are those who have received mercy. Yeah. Unless we are prepared to see ourselves as though we are like a helpless, vulnerable, and desperately exposed little child, we will not receive this mercy. The one who stands firm on his own two feet cannot be scooped up into the arms of a loving father. But for those who would humble themselves and by God's grace be made aware of our great need for mercy... Peace and love are granted in unmeasurable fashion. Peace. Mercy, peace, and love. Peace that passes understanding, it is called in the scriptures. The peace that epitomized the Christian while the world cowered in fear during COVID. The peace that rests almost tangibly, palpably in a hospital room among family members while a precious loved one breathes their last breath on earth because of the confidence in the room that they breathe their first in glory. It's the peace that enables you to live in the moment for God's glory rather than being wrapped up, fretting over the future of world conflicts or a fragile globalized economy. When peace like a river attendeth my way, 
when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, go ahead. It is well with my soul. Mercy and peace. Grace and peace. Always presented in that order, as the late Chuck Smith used to say, because you can't experience the peace of God without first being given the grace from God. That which is offered by way of greeting is mercy from God to enlighten your mind to your need for a new heart. And it is a a promise from God to be merciful on the last day of judgment. Therefore, you can have peace in this life regardless of the conditions of the world around you because you are kept for Jesus, verse 1, by the strong and unconditional love of God, verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, friends, we take that that few minutes by way of introduction for a very real purpose. This is more than a casual greeting. It must be. In fact, this is critical knowledge. It is the foundation of your hope. And uniquely, it was conveyed to man through inspiration, which then became known as the text of Scripture. In just a few short moments of introduction, we are offered a recap of the foundation of our Christian faith. But, what confidence should we have in it? These are mere words, are they not? Written by a man with a famous name. Na, 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 na. Right? A man who in his time claimed to be the brother of James, who himself was the half-brother of Jesus. Neither of these two men were disciples of Jesus while he lived and walked on the earth. Only after his death and resurrection did they believe. Can you imagine being the younger brother of Jesus? (laughs) I won't take off on that. We don't have time. That would be fun to explore. When one sibling says about the other, she's just perfect. She always does the right thing. They mean it, but they don't really mean it. You know what I mean? With Jesus, it was like, he never does anything wrong. Why is it always me, Mom? (laughs) He's your favorite. I can't. I got to stop. Like, we got to just, I have five children, you know, like, I could understand the... The conversations that might ensue. Who made you the boss of me? I am God. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> it, just goes, it just goes on and on, you know? But what confidence can we really have 
in these opening words. I mean, we, we supposedly derive this great comfort. I wax poetic supposedly about mercy and peace and love and how the supporting text of Scripture amplifies these few words, but why? What certainty do we have that this, hey, Jude, meant anything more than nice things coming out of the imagination of his own mind? What confidence can we really have in these words? And if we can't have much confidence in his words, what confidence can we have in the message of his words? And here lies the issue at hand today. It is, if you will, the battlefield of an errancy. Of course, we're calling our study of Jude the long war against God. Last week was the next chapter in the long war. This week we'll consider the battlefield of an errancy in the long war against God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God is by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages and is therefore authoritative so that in all controversies of religion the church is finally to appeal to them. The statement is thorough. The statement seemed necessary because the battlefield raged on in the era of the Reformation over the inerrancy of Scripture. The alternative to that confident and sweeping statement is that we should listen to the guy on YouTube who says the Bible can't be trusted, the language has been translated so many times, we really can't know what it means in some false form of humility. Either we stand on the shoulders of the church fathers, arm in arm with the reformers, confident that the Bible in its original manuscripts is without error or fault in all of its teaching, or... We will be Ephesians 4, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so with that statement, let us look to the next verse in Jude's letter to consider what he has to say and the challenge to biblical inerrancy facing the church from the very beginning. Let's read it again. Beloved, that phrase once again from verse one. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Three phrases we'll consider this morning. Number one, a change of plans. Although I was eager to write to you about something else. There was a drastic and dramatic shift, a change of plans. Perhaps Jude heard some troubling news. Or perhaps he and Peter talked. If you read Second Peter, it's like, oh boy, it seems like him and Jude were like roommates. <laughs> Maybe it was something else. Whatever it was, It seems as though Jude sat down with, you know, quill and parchment, intent on writing an encouraging letter all about the good news. 
After starting and stopping, wadding up a few pieces of paper, frustrated, Jude starts again. Only this time, seemingly compelled to pen a message very different than the one he originally intended. Now these little moments bring to our attention the unique interplay between God and his chosen mouthpieces when it came to the inspiration of his written word. We can all sort of relate to Jude's expression, can't we? We wanted to say one thing, but circumstances demanded we say or do another. What we know for sure is that Jude felt compelled, deeply so, to write this letter, not just a letter. The phrase in the Greek that I found it necessary, it's eskan ananke, it would read literally as I had received the necessity. Carrying with it the, con- the, 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 the idea of um, compression unto explosion. Isn't that how a diesel engine works? They don't ignite the fuel. Who knows diesel? Somebody knows. Somebody knows how diesel fuel works. Tom? High compression. So Jude invented diesel engines. <laughs> That's just jumping right to application. That's skipping all the observation and interpretation critical to the inductive Bible study method. Carries the idea of compression. I had received the necessity like it was pressing on him unto explosion. Hmm. Well, who did he receive this necessity from? The only logical answer is the person of the Holy Spirit. A threat was presenting itself to the church, and the Holy Spirit, through Jude, determined this warning and affirmation of the truth to be necessary. Which, of course, brings us to the question for us today. Why Jude? Why now? After having spent more than a year in the book of Romans, which was heavy from day one, right? It was an arduous task for our church family to wade through the the doctrines of our faith and the complexity of the interplay between the Jew and the non-Jew in the early church and the application thereof of the unity required regarding Christian liberty and things of that nature, and being eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. Man, we lived it, didn't we, church? For a year, and you, gluttons for punishment, kept coming back. And so I wanted to go to something light, you know? I wanted to go to something happy, you know, some, you know, like Job. No, I mean, like, (laughs) I mean, like Philippians, you know, I can do all things through Christ, you know, like something just, but while I was praying about what, book of the Bible we would explore, you know, next, the book of Jude was brought to my attention. I asked the rest of our elders to pray. I said, this is what's on my heart. Will you pray and tell me what you think? And the decision was unanimous. It was determined by the elders that the warnings found in Jude are ones we need to heed and hear today. The time to hear them is now, and the urgency of the threat is real. Earlier this year, Grant Castleberry wrote, The church is at a watershed moment. 
The predominant worldviews in our culture firmly oppose the Christian worldview. The pressure exerted on both the individual Christian and the church to abandon biblical doctrine is immense, especially along the lines of biblical sexuality. Therefore, the issue of biblical authority and sufficiency is the continental divide of our generation. I can't disagree. I said it earlier the last week, the devil's most productive schemes begin by eroding confidence in God's word. Al Mohler, when asked recently, what is the biggest issue facing the church today? He said, one word, faithfulness. Will the church, is the church going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and stand by the, quote, entirety of biblical truth? That was the question. Everything else, Mohler said, is derivative of that particular challenge. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, Methodist preacher, he was asked at the end of the 19th century, what are your concerns for the church of Jesus Christ going into the 20th century? His answer, he says, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be, listen carefully, religion without the Holy Ghost Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. When you consider the landscape of American evangelicalism, Booth seems a prophet. When Rob Bell's Love Wins can top the New York bestseller list, en route to over half a million copies sold, that's an ominous sign. For in it, Bell claims universal salvation for all, irrespective of stated belief in Jesus, repentance, or the application of God's mercy based on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Just everybody goes to heaven because love wins. There is no hell for humans, Bell says. And anyone who claims otherwise is foolishly caught up in dogma. They just, they just don't have the insight. And I would make fun of his turtleneck and his dark rimmed glasses, but I'm not going to do that. That's not the time or the place. This is not the environment for it. Before he was an open heretic and apostate, Bell was first a pastor at a large church in Granville, Michigan. And if you find some of his old YouTube videos, he taught a pretty good Bible. Went to Fuller Theological Seminary, was ordained, taught the scriptures. Verse four, certain people have crept undermining God's word from within, not attacking from the outside. A threat is facing the church. A change of plan is necessary. What are we then required to do? Second phrase, contend for the faith. 
contend. Again, it's that word agonizomai. Same word that Paul said in Romans, to struggle, strive with me in prayer. It's from the word, the root, the root word from which we get our idea of agony. It is offered this prefix, epi, in the Greek, which intensifies it. So it might better be translated in English, earnestly contend for the faith. Francis Schaeffer in The God Who Is There, he writes, the Christian must resist the spirit of the world in the form it takes in his own generation. I want us to hear that again because I had to pause and read it again. The Christian must resist the spirit of the world in the form it takes in his own generation. Going on, if he does not do this, he is not resisting the spirit of the world at all. Contend. Going on to quote Luther, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not professing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. And then he expands on that idea with an illustration, the illustration of the battlefield. Again, Luther, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on the battlefield beside is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. What's Luther saying? Well, he's saying when, when the church is being assaulted, when truth is being assaulted, when the gospel is having war waged against it, over here in this particular arena, it is no great boldness to be over here with the armor of God, right? Got my sword and my shield and my helmet and I'm over here by myself, right? What is Schaefer and Luther and Jude compelling of us? Agonize in the battlefield of your generation for the faith. Why, though? Why can't I just, like, go to work and be happy and, like, raise my kids to, like, be good people? Why are we talking all this, you got this dark image on the screen about the long war? We're at church, and it's like, we're on our battle, and the preacher's all like, mm-hmm. Why? Well, because, friends, the battle is being waged to undermine the authority and sufficiency of God's word, whether you're fighting or not. You don't have to be in the fight for the battle to rage on. 
The only question is, will you dress for war in the armor of God and stand tall and look shiny, bold somewhere else where the battle isn't being fought? Or will you recognize from the beginning that Satan has sought to undermine God's word from the Garden of Eden up to this present day? Did God really say? And every day in between. Will you contend? Will you agonize for the truth, for the sufficiency of Scripture as stated in Peter that the Father has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness? Will you stand with Paul on the statement that all Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work will you you're being asked to join will you merely go back to work tomorrow as if you weren't I'd like for us to explore one historical early challenge to the authority of the text of scripture and how the church responded there's a man by the name of Marcion of Pontus Marcion, born the year A.D. 85, get this, the son of a pastor. Born in 85, the son of a pastor. This is 50 years after Jesus' ascension. That pastor, who had a son in A.D. 85, could have very well been appointed by one of the apostles At minimum, he could have been appointed by Titus or Timothy, who was appointed by Paul himself. You mean just like two steps removed from an apostle? There's a man named Marcion who would go on to be one of the greatest heretics of the early church? Yep. Let's talk about him. He had credentials, and so at the age of 50, Marcion moved back to the city of Rome and began to teach in the church, and for about 10 years, he would teach in the church that 70 years ago received the letter from the hand of Paul. He taught that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods, The God of the Old Testament was an evil God who created an evil world. He was also the God of the Hebrew people. He was a God of just justice, just strict, harsh justice. But Jesus, Jesus is the God of goodness, a God previously unknown and unrevealed. Marcion compiled his own official Bible consisting of none of the Old Testament only the Gospel of Luke, which was heavily redacted, and the letters of Paul, minus his letters to Timothy and Titus. He therefore sought to unhitch the church, as it might have been said, from the Old Testament, like modern-day apostates. 
There's one problem with Marcion's affection for Paul's writings is that Paul quoted from the Old Testament often in a favorable way. So any place where Paul did that, Marcion removed those passages from his official Bible. You see, I've never heard of Marcion. Well, his teaching was significant enough in the early church to warrant response in writing from church fathers Justin, Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Tertullian. And if you know anything about church history and the church fathers, you know that's a bit of a who's who. Most notably, there is Tertullian's writing against Marcion. The whole thing is just, right? It's in Latin, advectus Marcionis or whatever, but it just means against Marcion which is pretty strong, I think, a strong way to start. (laughs) After being excommunicated from the church in 144 AD for his obviously heretical teaching, Marcionite churches, quote-unquote, popped up all over the Roman Empire and held on and held sway over many, forget this, 150 years. Do you know how old the term teenager is? Less than 100 years. Nowhere in human history can we find the term teenager before about 100 years ago. The idea didn't exist. That's just a little bit of perspective because, of course, teenager is, right, I've got the stickers on my car. Caution. What does it say? Like inexperienced driver. Terrible driver. Like what? I don't know what it says exactly. But it basically says caution teenager behind the wheel. Everybody steer clear, right? It's, a, it's such a common part of our vernacular, we don't even think about the word, and yet it didn't exist 100 years ago. This man's heresy was prevalent in the early church for longer than the word teenager was part of the human dialect in the course of human history. 150 years. Like modern-day movements that pervert the gospel, Marcionite churches carried an air of legitimacy by being church-adjacent. After all, son of a pastor. They also, like other modern-day movements that pervert the gospel, allowed women to serve in the pastorate. They ignored the Old Testament, and they selectively sought taught portions of the New Testament to serve their perverse purposes. The Marcionite gospel was one of separation from this evil material world, sort of like the often Amish, heretical version of Christianity. Salvation was through faith in a redefined Jesus, not as the co-eternal one, but rather a, a different version of Jesus, expressed in modern times as something called modalism, championed by such people as T.D. Jakes and Stephen Furtick, with a tinge often 
The Marcionite gospel was per- pervaded with a, a tinge of prideful insight into the true faith. And do you want to know how and why? Because Marcion was discipled in his adult life by a known early Gnostic called Credo. Credo did not wage an open war against the authority of the scriptures. Credo took the son of a pastor under his wing. Verse four, certain people have crept in. I imagine it seemed like a legitimate denomination to many at the time. You know, it's AD 201. You just graduated from high school. You're invited to the Marcionite church founded by the son of one of the earliest pastors of the Christian church. Locations all over, faithful followers of the settled doctrine in several different towns, and yet what was taught was a false gospel founded by one from within, cloaked in the language and garb of genuine faith. Certain people have crept in. The response by the rest of the church was the recognition of a necessity to identify accepted documents in their entirety, something known as the canonization of Scripture. The church fathers went, whoa, 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 this guy's picking and choosing, and he's like, he's erasing bits and parts He likes this letter from Paul, but not that letter from Paul. He likes this portion of 1 Thessalonians, but that that portion of 1 Thessalonians. And he's got churches all over the Roman Empire. What do we do? Well, here's what we do. It's almost like they sat around like this. And they said, what's at the root of this movement? What's at the root? And the answer was the sufficiency and authority and inerrancy of the word of God. You see, if you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament considered authoritative, then Marcionite churches can't say there's no such thing. The Old Testament's garbage. If there is a particular confidence officially in the inspired word of God and the the Pauline epistles, then Marcion can't say not that one, but this one, not those parts, only these parts. Because everyone would go, what about verse 14, preacher? Right? So they said, if we're going to address the issue, we're going to address it at the foundation. And what's the foundation? The foundation is the text of Scripture. So in AD 170, the Muratorian canon was compiled. An official statement was released All of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament letters that we know of are considered canon. They're considered accepted, except at this point, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and 3rd John. And if you've ever ever read 3rd John carefully, you you know probably kind of why. Because 3rd John's like, don't let the heretics even come on your doorstep. (laughs) Don't greet them, don't give them food, but it's raining, it's cold, kick them out. It's like, whoa, that's, let's hold off on that one for a few more years. You know what I mean? 
Then after much debate in 363 AD, the council of Laodicea determined that, that those books ought to be included in the Bible, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 3rd John. However, at that point, they started reading Revelation a little bit more closely, and so they said, okay, all that except Revelation's out. It's too wild, which we all understand why. And then finally, by the end of the 4th century, the Council of Carthage determined Revelation belongs, and the canon of Scripture was settled. The debate was ended. The process was long and arduous, though, The council sought the Lord. They put the various writings to the test under certain points of scrutiny. In the end, we trust that God, through the Spirit's indwelling and giving wisdom to the church fathers and these councils, uh, he determined his own library. The God who inspired his word has not left its preservation and authentication up to chance. See, what was necessary, friends, where the battle raged was on the basis of God's inspired word. Marcion undermined the Old Testament texts. He altered, removed, and ignored parts of the New Testament texts. A disciple of the apostle John named Polycarp met Marcion and called him the firstborn of Satan. Why? Because it was true. He was adding to and subtracting from the scriptures and so brought condemnation on himself according to Revelation 22, 18 through 19. Truly, friends, Satan's most effective deceptions begin by undermining confidence in God's word. And so it was there on that battlefield that faithful men and women fought for the inerrancy and inspiration of the text of scripture and we are glad they were willing to do so. What if it was just too hard What if they couldn't be bothered? What if they left it for the next generation and then you're one more generation removed from the apostles and from Jesus? One more war, one more library lost to fire. What if they just couldn't be bothered? Friends, in the long war against God, the battlefield has not changed. Every challenge facing the church today is a spin-off from the challenge to the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. And so, the instruction comes to us. Agonize for the faith. If you're fighting for something, defending something from attack, you must know then what it is. Right? So, Third phrase, the faith was given. Contend for the faith. Well, what exactly are we fighting for? Or we're fighting for the faith on the battlefield of the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, what does Scripture tell us about this faith? Well, we're going to do this. By way of conclusion, we're going to explore, and I mean this briefly, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven tenets of the faith that was given once for all to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Not the the faith that was discovered via meditation, but the faith that was delivered 
through the apostles, by Jesus himself. Seven tenets of the faith, not some faith, not faith as it is expressed in salvation, the faith, meaning a, a, a totality of Orthodox Christian doctrine. Ready, number one, monotheism. There is one God. Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. We believe and understand that there is one God and he lives. Secondly, the Holy Trinity. There is one God, and yet he is expressed in the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three in one. Jesus himself spoke of the triune God in the Great Commission. Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, now there are varieties of gifts, but listen carefully, the same Spirit There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Again, the implication of the Trinity. Not three gods, but one. Not three modes, three persons. As the New City Catechism question three answers, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I love this phrase. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And to the extent that we don't understand or can't fully comprehend that, good, worship God for your dumbness, all right? Just praise God. He's awesome. His ways are higher than our ways. Who can know the mind of God? Who can grasp him? Who can wrap the infinite God of all creation into their neat, tidy little box and say, I've got them figured out by my book? Man, get out of town. Right? Just worship. It's amazing. Thirdly, the deity of Christ. Jesus is God. He is called the Son, but he is in fact God. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And that claim was authenticated by his resurrection. Or how about in John chapter 20, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, my master and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, don't call me God. I'm just a servant. I'm just the Son. I'm just a created being. No. I'm just adopted, which is a heresy maybe we'll explore next week. While being worshipped on Palm Sunday as he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They worshipped him and Jesus didn't correct them. Yet every other biblical figure in the Bible refused to receive the praise of men, but Jesus accepted it because he is God. And you are to worship God and God alone. (laughs) Fourthly, there is salvation through Christ alone. In this brief 
doctrine, we get into the, the notion of the fall of man and the need for rescue. And, but simply this, salvation through Christ alone, meaning all roads do not lead to God. All religions are not created equal. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All religions don't lead up the mountaintop to God. There is a way that seems right to man. But its end is destruction. Great and wide is the pathway, the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life, and few find it. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Saved from what? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin is death. We all need to be saved. O Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Not only is salvation through Christ alone, but it is, fifthly, salvation by grace alone. Meaning you cannot earn your way out of the consequences of your sin. Ephesians 2, famous words, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not of not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross and like the thief next to him, we enjoy the blessings of his earnings by grace through faith, not works, not sacrifice, not diligence, not discipline, just grace. Six, the resurrection of Christ. The gospel is incomplete without the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Jesus rose up from the grave. He arose, he arose, right? I love this quote. All other religions are based on works or a powerless deity or person. The leaders of all other religions die and remain dead. The Christian faith is based on Christ crucified and resurrected to life. That's good. Number seven, the gospel. The gospel, the good news. It is the tenant, it is the foundation of the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Dead, buried, raised in complete compatibility with every Old Testament text known to man. That's what Paul said. When he said the scriptures, he was referring not to his own letters. He wasn't referring even to the Gospels. He was referring to the Old Testament. As the Old Testament predicted, the Christ, the Mashiach, the Anointed One, died for our sins, was buried, and was raised. This is the essence of the Gospel. Any other message is to be considered anathema. 
as Paul writes to the Galatians. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Strong words from the apostle on the basis of the most fundamental aspect of the gospel. You might add an eighth, and that is the doctrine of faith, that we are saved by grace through faith. You will not intellectually argue your way into salvation. You must become like a child, vulnerable, who perhaps understands not, but believes. And I would argue that the big brains of a great many geniuses have kept them out of heaven because they could not simply lower themselves to the point of faith. Well, it is a good word and a good message to be reminded this morning of the essential tenets of the faith we are compelled to contend for. And it is good to be reminded that a battle is raging in the spiritual places. You have a place, no matter your age, no matter your years left on earth, no matter your level of intellect or spiritual formation, you have a place in the battlefield. And you need not worry, for you're being kept for Jesus. Well, let's pause there and next week we'll get into verse four. Gracious Father, thank you for your word and how in it we find all things pertaining to life and godliness. It is sufficient for us. Help us then as we attempt to respond to the call to contend for the faith that was delivered Help us to do a few things. Number one, love your word. Long for your word, as we see later in the letter of Jude, that there are those who fell away who did not receive the love of the gospel, the love of the word. Lord, put in us a deep and affectionate love for your scriptures. And then secondly, Lord, help us to not be distracted by this materialistic, wealthy American existence. But instead, help us to remain steadfast and focused on the battlefield, contending for the faith in our homes with our children, in our places of work, when we go on vacation, when we go to the grocery store, as we're driving down the road with the church sticker on our window, Remind us, Lord, that we are at all times compelled to contend for the faith. So may we represent it well, but may we earnestly participate in the battle that wages all around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.